you would take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. As you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and make a comment here because in, inevitably somebody will see this. I'm not going to be in verses 1 through 11. All right, we're going to begin in verse 12. But this is one of those areas that can cause no small amount of spiritual and mental disturbance when you see verses 1 through 11 and your Bible says something like this. This text is not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. So I'm about to do something really terrible. I'm going to draw that to your attention, but I'm not going to talk about it. All right, now I do have an answer for that, why that's there. That's a whole nother sermon. I've actually talked about this before, but if after the sermon, if you would like to come, I'll be down front and you'd like to know a little bit more about, so what's the deal there, then, then I'd be glad to give that. But I just wanted to go ahead and give you that warning up front. So let's try not to be distracted uh, by that feature and, uh, and then we'll, we'll begin because some translations follow 753 through 812 like the New King James, uh, but we're going to begin at verse 12, which I think begins a new section. All right, so verse 12, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees, therefore, said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury, and he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. When it comes to life, when it comes to actually having Life And by this, I do mean in a very literal sense, my physical life, life on the planet. When it comes to life, what is the most fundamental, foundational requirement for life? Now, you might say, well, Pastor, that's, that's a question that's challenging to answer because really life is the result of a, of a number of different elements, so to speak. So, someone might say, well, in order to have life, you need air, right? It is helpful. 
It is generally helpful that, yes, air is important for life. Someone might say, water. We cannot live without water. Here I go again. I'm about to mention a word that I'll lose some of you. Food. All right? Yeah, food. We know that food is a necessary part of life. Now, then some of you might try and get a little bit more cerebral or even romantic, and you might say, we need relationships, we need love, we need understanding, patience, you might include all of these. And I, I would agree that all of these elements have an important bearing on both physical life and what we might call spiritual life. But I still would say there is an element even more fundamental than any of those. That without this one element, you don't have any of the others. Life requires light. You might think, oh, that's disappointing. I thought you were going to say something much more profound, but that is... In fact, the nature of things, that without light, there wouldn't be any of this. Really, Pastor? Are you sure? I don't think you're an astrophysicist. No, I'm just a mere theologian, all right? But I'm pretty sure my favorite book tells me that in the beginning, the first words God ever uttered that are recorded then for us these words that are responsible for bringing into existence that which did not exist beforehand, right? In other words, bringing the universe out of nothing. When God spoke, He didn't say, let there be air. He didn't say, let there be water. He didn't say, let there be fried chicken. He said, let there be be light. And in those very first words of the existence of the universe, an explosion of light burst onto the scene, and everything else in God's created order can fall into place as He makes each and every part because He first called light to be. In fact, even when you look at God then moving ahead and separating light from darkness, He still maintains light as being essential because He gives one light to rule the day and then gives another light to rule the darkness. Now, light is fundamental. Where there is no light, There cannot be life. So it's not a surprise then that as we turn our attention to yet another image that Jesus himself gives uh, of who he is, of his nature, of his significance for salvation, of my ongoing need for him in terms of being a believer and needing his ongoing ministry, it's no surprise that he turns to the image of light. So we, we, we turn now this morning to the second of seven I am statements. This is the series we kicked off about a month ago. We spent our first three weeks in John chapter 6, and Jesus' first I am statement that 
I am the bread of life. And so just keep in mind the categories we're working with as we go through the I am statements. All of the I am statements give us information on three issues. They say something about the divinity of Christ. They say something about the saving work of Christ. And they say something about the ongoing ministry of Christ. And so as we look at these seven I am statements, we're gonna, we reflect on these, bringing out these points and principles, noting how these, these form an important feature to the, the entire Gospel of John, being a, a, a central part of the point that this Gospel is trying to make, that Jesus, fully God, fully man, is the one and only means of salvation and is the one then who still leads and guides me as a child of God. Now, we're going to do something, though, a little bit different. And that that I I want to put chapter 8 in its context. This is the challenge, then, of preaching texts like this but not going, you know, like through the book. Because obviously, if a, if a month ago, if I had started on John chapter 1 and said, we're going to study the gospel of John verse by verse, where do you think I would be by now? Verse 4, all right, yeah, that's fair-ish, maybe 3, maybe 5, all right, yes, all right, so, so th- this is the challenge, you know, normally we'll take, you know, we take it bit, bit by bit and walk our way through it, but I felt like this was a, a helpful way to think carefully Uh, about the portraits that John paints for us and Jesus himself identifying himself with these I am statements. So that means we got to put this in context. And I just want to point out how really the context of chapter 8 includes chapter 6. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach that over again, all right? And chapter 7. See, here's what John is doing. Under the inspiration of the Spirit... You know, John, John writes the most theological of the Gospels. Though they all have theology in them, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, are, give a little bit more attention to, to kind of delineating the series and sequence of events. John gives us more of Jesus' teaching and, and kind of offers us a more robust theological interpretation on these things. And so it's no surprise that John would kind of take a little bit more time to walk through and would require a little bit more context, specifically these three chapters. John is addressing teachings of Jesus that go all the way back to the wilderness wandering. You you remember that period of time in Israel's history after she leaves Egypt Uh, under that dramatic and miraculous work of God, and God has promised then to take them on to the promised land to to enjoy that land flowing with milk and honey. But we know the tragic story that they get there just, just to the borders of it, and, well, they're too big, they're too powerful, there's no way to take this land. And so this, this entire generation of Israelites wander around in the desert for 40 years as a result of their sin. It is the generation that the Bible loves to refer to as the stiff-necked people, the the, the group that is often elevated as being indicative of what rebellion and hard-heartedness and utter foolishness looks like. I mean, to read the stories 
you know, after that event, after that uh, event, especially in the book of Numbers, you see them doing all kinds of things. But the, the story of the wilderness wandering, though, also has another emphasis. Not just that this was a rebellious people and they are facing the judgment for their sin, but God in his grace provided for them. So in John chapter 6, when Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life, what is the imagery then that is used to help further that argument? Of course, the people bring it up, but Jesus then jumps on it that they bring up the issue of the manna that came down from heaven. They were really impressed with that sign. Bread, six days a week, twice on Friday, right, to make up for Sabbath. For 40 years, for two million people, it's impressive. And Jesus, though, tells them, you missed the whole point of that thing. I'm not, I'm not just here to give you bread, nor am I just here to pass out bread that came down from heaven. I am that very bread. What, what was given in, in the wilderness wandering is just a type and shadow of me. I am the bread of life. Now, we won't study chapter 7, but if you were to read chapter 7, which undoubtedly all of you have time to do, all right? Some of you can say, all right, I'll do it right now. No, all right, but well, if you want to, obviously you can. But chapter 7, some of the events of the teachings of chapter 7 take place during... An important feast in, in Israel's history. There were three important ones. And in, the, and in the midst of this feast, the emphasis, among some other things, is on God's provision for them in the wilderness wandering. Not only did God provide manna, God also provided water, right? You might recall the story where a rock was struck and water comes gushing out. Being in the wilderness, water is not necessarily your most your most prevalent uh, source. It's not something that just pops up along the way. And so God, for 40 years, made sure they had water. Well, in the midst of this feast that remembered this provision of God, Jesus also says that he is the living water. All right, so bread of life, manna from heaven, living water, the water coming out of the rock. Now we get to chapter 8. Now, to set the context for this, the feast that they had been celebrating is over. But there was another important celebration to this feast. In fact, it took place in the place where Jesus is giving this teaching. It said it, if you were to look again in verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Now, that little tidbit tells you Jesus is in a place called the Court of Women. It would have been the most accessible part of the temple complex for anyone. And as part of the feast, a feast that's now over, by the way, but as a part of the feast, one of the events was the lighting of the lamps in the Court of Women. And the the lamps were lit on the first night of the feast. And they stayed that way, but they were lit at night because as a part of this feast, not only did they remember the manna that came down and not only did they remember the water that was provided, but God also provided for them a pillar of fire at night. And so the lighting of these lamps were designed to be a remembrance to the people that God 
also in the wilderness, provided them a cloud by day, protect them during the harshness of the, of the, the, the realities of being in the desert, and then provided them a pillar of fire at night that had a variety of purposes for them. Most practically being, it would have provided some amount of warmth. If you've ever been in the desert, it can be really hot until it's not. When the sun goes down and it can get really cold really quickly. So to provide then that fire by night for warmth, what else happens at night? You ready for this? It gets dark. You can write that down if you'd like, all right? And... They didn't have any apps on their cell phones to help with this, okay? In other words, in in order then to have the light that was needed, God provided them this pillar of fire at night. How long did he provide the cloud by day and the pillar by night? Every day, seven days a week for 40 years. Now those lights have been put out. Jesus is in this very same court. And after having taught them, because I, I really think it's best to see uh, that, that the end of chapter 7 and th- that set of stories, Jesus talking with the religious leaders and, and that interaction between them, which, which was really fairly tense and contentious, that, that discussion is continuing at some point later, perhaps even the next day. Because when it says in verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about those religious leaders and anybody else who was in that court. And so what does he dare to say? Then he spoke to them again, perhaps with smoke still trailing out of the lamps that had been lit, the beauty of that court being on display night after night after night, now that's been snuffed out. And in that context, Jesus tells these religious leaders, I am the light of the world. And you say, Pastor, uh, is that really the context? I mean, was he really drawing off that image? I mean, the text doesn't say it. Just notice then, after Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There there is no doubt that Jesus is drawing on the image of the pillar of fire that, that guided the people through the desert as a way to say, that's me, not just I give light, Just like the bread. Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't give bread. He is the bread. Jesus doesn't just give light. He is the light. He's the light that gives darkness. And you notice the reference to the world. This is not light being given to just one group of people or one religious group or one nationality. This, This is a light that is accessible to Jew and Gentile. You say, well, again, Pastor, are the Pharisees really, do they really pick up what he's kind of laying down? Well, I think so. Look what it says in verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, why would they say that? I mean, is it possible that someone could use the phrase describing themselves or someone else as light and not be ascribing unto them divinity. Well, sure. I mean, I I could say, you know what? When you walk in the room, it's like a light comes in. 
I'm sure that's what you think when I walk in, all right? So it's, it's like a light has come on because of the brightness and the shining, just the beautiful spirit, all right? So you might say that as a way to say somebody is just really brightens the room. Now, does that mean if I say, boy, you're, you're just like a light, you're like a ray of light, do I mean you are equal to God? No. And in fact, are you or would anyone else around you be offended by that kind of language? No. So why do the Pharisees care? Because they know exactly what he's saying. The reason they challenge him, and just so you think, just so you know, this is serious because notice again, verse 20 ended by saying, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not come. Why does John tell me that? Because the Pharisees, if they could have, would have tied him up, dragged him out, and stoned him to death because they know exactly what he's saying. I am God. That's what he's saying. And that's why they fuss with him. That's why, well, that's why they say your, your testimony is not true because you're testifying about yourself. So then we have this great interaction between Jesus and these religious leaders where, where Jesus says, one, I, I can testify about myself because of who I am, where I've come from, and where I'm going. No one knows me like me. Theologically, that's exactly right. Then he goes on to say, and I'm, I'm from the Father. I ask, who is your father? And Jesus responds by saying, you don't know either, you don't know me, you don't know my father. I mean, you want to talk about a very clear statement Jesus gives to them. But then, then he makes the assertion, no, my testimony, of course, is true, because I testify to myself and my father has testified to me. Again, what is all of this doing? All of this is centered on verse 12. That fundamental statement, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the I am statement definitely being an allusion to God himself saying, I am, and then the light of the world definitely an allusion here to what was the pillar of fire that was provided to the people. And again, not saying that, that I'm like the light of the world or I resemble the light of the world. I am equivalent. This is, I, I am fully and completely divine. And at the same time, when he says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's saying, I'm the means of, of, of eternal life and salvation, and in me and in me alone. It's the means of being made right with God. So, I, I told you this would be a little bit different, because really, that was a pretty long introduction. It would be yet another sermon that my preaching professor would give me a C on, which you all should know. My very first sermon in preaching class, I did get a C, all right? So anyway, so that's who you've got. I mean, you know, at some point, not everybody can be the best, okay? I mean, you know, at some point, the doctor you have is not the best doctor, all right? He's pretty good. Uh, so anyway, so here's what we're going to do now, for, because I still have a few minutes, all right? And then to set up the, the, at least the next week. I want to spend then all of our time kind of unpacking what does, the, what does he mean by this? Because again, in this one verse, Jesus does declare himself to be the light of the world. And we, it must then give us some kind of understanding of Jesus, of his ministry, of his nature, his ministry. So what does it mean when Jesus says he is the light of the world? Well, I think there's at least four answers to that. It could be more, but there are at least four. Number one, you want to fill in a blank. 
Here's the one and only that we would fill in this morning. As light, Jesus gives life. I don't make these things up. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And that phrase, that phrase light of life, would, would mean light which is essential for life. Light which results in life. Light which without would not produce life. So again, Jesus' statement here is really clear. He's not describing himself as one light among many lights, or a good light, or even the best light. He alone is the one who gives light. So in this context, John does something he loves to do. John and his gospel loves to make contrasts between you know, two clearly competing ideas. So there'll be, there'll be truth, and then there would be falsehood, is, is one example. Love, John definitely sets up language of love and hate. Does this, goes on in his letter and does this, by the way. One of his favorite is this one, light and darkness. And, and then contrasting for us, what is the nature of being in the light? And then what is the nature of being in darkness? And so th- this, this is clearly Jesus being emphatic that, that in, in order to get out of darkness, in order to have life, you require me. He is the only means by which someone is brought out of darkness and into life. Now, you, you'll note right off the bat, in John's gospel, he gets to this connection, this connection of light and life. So John chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So it's no surprise then that this imagery, because really if you read those first 18 verses of John's gospel, you'll see like a basic outline of the rest of the gospel. All the themes are repeated, come back in as you read then through the rest of it. So it's not a surprise then that this pops back up, this emphasis on a connection between light and life. In order to have life, I need light. And by the way, the implication is is kind of a double one. This also means I've got to come out of the darkness. If I am in the darkness, then I am dead. To be in darkness is to be in death. To be in light is to be in life. And then John loves to, to bring out these kind of distinctions. Now, this kind of imagery, though, shouldn't surprise us just from John. Because we see it in other parts of the Bible, right? In fact, some of the most familiar parts of the Bible, the Christmas story, it's full of light. Light shows up so often in the Christmas stuff that you can't have Christmas without lights, right? I'm I'm pretty sure churches are required to do candlelight at some point during the Christmas season. It's somewhere in a handbook, all right? Somewhere, they teach us this at seminary, and this is just on every you can't have Christmas without it, all right? If there's not a candle, you've not done Christmas because of light. 
Isaiah chapter 9 tells us this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. The New Testament authors use this verse as a way to describe what happened when Christ was born. It was even a light in the sky that should not have been there that announced the birth of Christ. Now, we do want to reflect just a bit on that language, though, of darkness, just so we really understand what it is saying. Because often, here's how I hear, I hear this described. And when people read verses like this and hear some of it taught, this idea of walking in darkness, unfortunately, what gets emphasized the most is talking about a people who are walking in their grief, in their hurt, in their pain, and in their brokenness. Now, undoubtedly, that information is included, but the primary image the Bible is communicating with the language of darkness is the same language it's communicating, like when Ephesians chapter 2 says, you are born dead in your trespasses and sin. To be in darkness is to be born into a state of of lack of knowledge and understanding and and you're unable to do anything about it. To be in deep darkness is to speak of the depth of sin and depravity that, that that is permeating the human condition. So again, it's not, it's not just that, yes, things are hard and, and it feels really dark because life is tough. No, it's, it's, it's more describing the total inability of someone in darkness to do anything about his dark condition. And, it, and it, is, it is for sure emphasizing that in order for me to have life, I, I cannot, because I'm in darkness, because darkness cannot generate light, I need light to be introduced into the darkness. So, darkness is associated with total depravity, utter sin condition. Darkness is associated with, with, with being unable to do anything about my condition. Darkness is associated with needing someone else to intervene, just like as a dead person needs life and the dead person cannot provide his own life, so does darkness need light and those in the darkness cannot provide their own light. In fact, when the Bible describes hell, one of its descriptions is utter darkness. In other words, it's not just that, that, that it's dark. This speaks of not having fellowship with God. This, means, this speaks of being separated from God. When I hear that language, I, I can't help but think of the couple of times, and maybe you've been in this kind of a situation, where I've gone on a tour of a cavern. Have you all ever been in a cavern, right? North Carolina has them, Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky. So wherever you have mountains, I guess you're going to have caverns of some kind. And inevitably on those tours, right? You go down in those caverns, you usually are going to hear a few stories, especially in the South. You're going to hear of bootleggers that used them, all right? Apparently they love, okay, they love going into the caves. You're going to hear of some civil war thing, all right? So a lot of civil war stuff happened in caverns. And you're going to hear about two, it always seems to be two boys who wandered into the cavern and couldn't get out, all right? That's all of them. That, 
So if you don't want to go to one, you don't have to. I just told you what the tour is, okay? But then it always includes the moment where they gather everybody. Often it's in like a, like a, a larger kind of space, maybe even like, you know, like, like a larger part of the cavern where you can see how it was formed and, you know, stalactites and mites, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then they turn out the light. You realize in that moment that except for that moment, you've probably never been in utter darkness. And it is utterly disturbing, all right? Now, I, I, I will tell you, apparently, I've, I've known for a long time that I don't care for heights, all right? I didn't know I had a problem with small spaces until I got an MRI one time, all right? And then I didn't realize that I was actually afraid of the dark until I was in one of these tours and I turned out the light. Because you can't see any that, the proverbial hand in front of your face, the person beside you, you can't see anything. It almost made me a little dizzy. The darkness was so disorienting. See, you and I don't normally face this, not even in the darkest part of night when there's no moon and the clouds are covering up the, the stars and, and, and you know, you're, all your lights are off. You can still perceive. There's still light. You can still perceive things. This, though, there's no way out. You're done. You're stuck. And if in that moment, I mean, and my thoughts are thinking, if... If I let go of my wife's hand, all right, I'm going to die in this place, all right? I, so I just want you to know your pastor and his weaknesses. There are some things I do well, but then, the, okay, all right? Might have even cried a little bit. Okay, just a little. This is what the Bible means, though, when it says, those who are walking in darkness, we don't mean mostly dark. We don't even mean nighttime. When the Bible says walking in darkness, this is the same thing as being born dead in your sin. This is, a, this is an, an absolutely unchangeable condition on my part. And so, when Jesus uses this, this phrase, it, it, is, it is a profound reminder, not only of his divinity, of him being the light of the world, but that also life only comes in him because only he can give me the light and only he can bring me out of darkness. An essential need in order to have life, I need light. And so Jesus as the light, he's the one who gives me life. He's the one who brings me out of darkness. This, by the way, is why now as believers, we have this sensation when we watch the news or hear about stuff that's going on in the world, and we think, are you people crazy? Right? We, we, might, we might even close our eyes, cover up our heads and think, can they not see? No. They cannot. Now, 
just so you don't have any pity for that, you know what else the Bible says about those who are walking in darkness? Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3. Everybody knows one verse from John chapter 3, but a lot of people don't know the rest of it, all right? Not all of it is as happy as for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's some hard stuff in chapter 3, so I would encourage you to read all of what, what is said there, but it includes this same language about light being, being shown to men, men in the darkness, but they did not comprehend it. And it says, because they loved the darkness. It's not just they are in it. They love it. And then add Romans 1 to that, and we are reminded not only do they love darkness, but they love it when you run in the darkness. And not only do they love it when you run in the darkness, they expect you to applaud everything that's done in the darkness. That's what they expect. They don't just want you to agree to disagree. They want you to applaud it. They want to parade it. They want to put it in our, in our educational system, right? They want to pass laws that, that affirm it and require it. This is what they want to do because they are dead in their trespasses and sin and they are walking in darkness. And so church, let us be reminded this morning that the only solution for the darkness in the world is not better legislation. It's not even the better people in the right positions. Though I'm for all of that. I'm for all of the, the, the political engagement that gets good, good godly, Jesus-loving people in positions of influence. But I'm here to tell you, nothing changes the darkness but the light. And there is no other light but the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what our world requires. Because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Pharisees understood what he was saying. Do we? In order to have life, I need light. Jesus is that light. So, of course, I, I would make an appeal to anybody here today who does not know Christ. Understand, you are in a difficult and dangerous position. You are in utter darkness. And the chances of you wandering out of this darkness is like wandering out of a cave without light. There's no way possible. But the good news is, Jesus has made a way. If you confess that you are a sinner and you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and you ask God to save you, not based on your own works, but based on what Christ has done, placing your faith in him, you can be saved. The light of the world can be yours and that light will give you life. Now, if you'd like to know more about that, I'll be down front. When the service is over, I'd love an opportunity to speak with you more about what it means to believe in Jesus as the light of the world. To believers, to those who say, yes, no, I've, yes, I, I'm with you. Yes, I just amen and clapped what you just said. I am all for it. You know, one of the beautiful things about darkness, darkness can never snuff out light and darkness can never resist light that is shown into it, right? I, I remember being on one of those same kinds of tours, except except I was, I was younger. It seems like I was with a class. Not only did they turn out the lights, but then the lady leading the tour had a little flashlight that after what seemed like an hour, but it was like 10 seconds, she turned it on. Not only was there this collective uh, relief from everybody in the room, but you could see that light literally bounce off every wall of the cavern. 
it does not take much light to dispel darkness. And so believers, this is the one beautiful truth, and we'll explore this a little bit more. It is the only one of the I am statements. It's the only one where Jesus also says, you are the light of the world. Now, not in the same way. You're not divine. You're not going to save anybody. But where Jesus then confers upon us the responsibility of being a light for the sake of the gospel in the darkness. Are we? Are we? Is my light shining? And by light, I don't mean just being a good guy. I mean being a very clear, bold, courageous, and intentional witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I being a faithful witness, a reflection of the light of Christ? Now, next week, we'll keep going, all right? We've got some other blanks to fill in. We'll reflect more on verse 12 on what that means. But I think for now, I think we're at a place where it's good then to think, what does it mean that he's the light of the world? He is my life. Is he indeed the one who is shining through my life? Let's stand together and I'll pray. After I pray, we'll continue to sing about the glorious ministry of our Savior to us. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your church. Privileged to have been able to come together on this Lord's Day, brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the King. We thank you that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have given us the light of the world. We thank you for Christ who gives us life that we might know you and be in fellowship with you. Father, I I do pray then that, that we would then walk in a manner that is consistent with being those who walk in the light as you are in the light. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would bring your word to bear upon our lives, that we would be obedient to it, and that you would be glorified by the work that is accomplished when your word takes root in our hearts and produces good fruit. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.